0: I'm trying to make this a little less a slideshow show of mics to India, and a little, but a lot of people have been asking about India, and as we were getting close to Lent, a couple things happened, one, I had a Lenten program scheduled, and the priest who was going to do it pulled out on me, uh, and two, I got really interested in morning we're going to talk a little bit about India, a little bit about so-called Eastern spirituality, um, or Eastern religions, and their encounter with the West, and we're going to talk a little bit about this Gospel of Thomas, which I'll say more about toward the end of my presentation. I'm going to take you through this adventure that I got to go on, but I'm going to do it backwards. And, and that's sort of for a reason. I think it's important when we talk about, or when we uh, when we engage in these questions, has anybody ever heard of Edward Said? S-I-S-A-I-E. Edward Said was one of the early writers in fields of sociology, ethnography, uh, in the first half of the 20th century. He wrote a really famous book called Orientalism. Orientalism, and in that book, Said critiques what he calls Orientalism, this idea of the East, uh, the idea of the, the exotic, the other, uh, that for Said, a lot of the way in which uh, Indian and Chinese and, and Asian and Asian subcontinent religious experiences, um, religious groups, uh, ethnicities, people and ways They've been treated as other, as different, as, as exotic. And what that has tended to do is meant that Western scholars in the academy, so-called, have encountered whole religious systems like Hinduism from a very comparative place. Well, Hinduism is different from Christianity because XYZ. And built into that is a sense of superiority-inferiority. The West is greater than the East, the West is more developed than the East, the West is, and Saeed critiques that whole sensibility in this landmark book. Um, and I think that's an important thing to, to mention. Is even on the trip that I was on, even some of the people that talked with us there was a little bit of this, like, eastern and western ways of thinking about things. Uh, And and it's actually a lot more complicated than that. It's been said it's strange to talk about Hinduism as a religion because Hinduism is actually more a family of religions. Calling Hinduism a religion is sort of like calling Christianity, Judaism, and Islam a religion. You'd say, oh, that's just the Abrahamic phase. It doesn't really work that way. As it's self-understood, there are actually many, many sort of iterations of Hinduism. Uh, And there are major iterations, like Vaishnavism and Shaivism, uh, the two sort of main uh, divisions there. But there are all sorts of subsets within. It's it's bigger even than the division between the Episcopal Church and the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church and the Methodist Church. So it's important to hit it with a sense of complexity. And I want to say that out front. Uh, And so I want to begin at the most different, the most other. I want to begin at the place that actually was the end of our journey uh, in India. So from January 15th to January 26th-ish, uh, I got to go with a group of 13 other North Americans, not quite in these places, but there was a, a bunch of folks from uh, the States and a handful of folks from Canada. Uh, they were organized by the Order of the Holy Cross, an Episcopal monastery on the banks of the Hudson River just north of New York City uh, by one of their monks, Brother Aiden, uh, and by a good friend of mine from seminary, a priest named Matthew Wright. And Matthew is the half-time rector of St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in Woodstock, New York. Uh, which is the most fitting place for Matthew Wright to be a priest that I can possibly imagine. Um, but it, it was a really amazing group of folks, really interesting group. Uh, in some ways, uh, it was it was interesting for me because it was from a church perspective the most white group that I had been a part of in a long time. And it was a really grounded, open. There were a lot of PhDs in the group. Uh, I think all the two of us were certified spiritual directors and were leading courses in contemplative spirituality around around Canada. Uh, So it was a really interesting interesting group of people, if not a very diverse group of people. Um, But we all got together. We all got on a 30-hour plane flight uh, and ended up in Chennai. And at the end of the trip, we ended at this place, this mountain, Arunachala is the site of the second biggest pilgrimage in India. So we were arriving actually during the biggest pilgrimage in India, and it was good that we were down in the southern part of India, because up north on the banks of the Ganges, in this time of January this year, was the world's largest gathering of human beings. Over a billion people get together for a multi-day festival where they bathe in the Ganges. And so it was really nice not to be anywhere near that. Uh, but we were here and, and we were not here for the full moon. In through up, sort of out of nowhere. Uh, And it's got a big flat plane all the way around it. And so people will circumambulate, walk all the way around this mountain. Uh, Arunachala is seen as an incarnation of the god Shiva. There's a story about Shiva and Arunachala. Uh, The story goes that uh, Vishnu and Brahma, two gods in Hinduism, Uh, were arguing over who was the greater God. And Brahma uh, and Vishnu could not decide, and so Shiva appeared. And Shiva turned into a column of fire, a column of light and fire. And Shiva said to Brahma and Vishnu, if you want to prove who is the greater God, then find the end of this column, and whoever finds it first is the greater God. And so, Brahma turned into a bird and began flying up to the top. And Vishnu, I forget what kind of animal it was, but he turned into a digging animal, like a mole. He started digging down. And Brahma and Vishnu, they climbed up and dug down for a 100 years. And neither of them reached the end. And so, Brahma decided, well, I'm going to just fly back on the bottom and say I reached the end and we'll call day. And so Brahma flies down, and Vishnu climbs back up, and Brahma says, I found the top of the column. And Vishnu says, I confess I did not reach the bottom. And Shiva says to Vishnu, well then you are the greater god, because this column had no top nor bottom. And so you, while you couldn't reach the bottom, you admitted your failure. And Brahma it is said that this is the reason why there are not temples to Brahma. There are temples to Vishnu, there are temples to Shiva, there are temples to all their children, there are temples to all their You will, won't find a temple to Brahma. And this was Shiva's, uh punishment. So it is said that that column of fire appeared here, on top of Arunachim in, in legend, um, and which is holy butter, and they light it on fire. And so there's a 40-foot-tall column of flame at the top of Aranachala to mark this festival. So this is Aranachala. Aranachala we went to visit largely because it was the home. Let's see if I can... Oh, i got to click. Maybe I can't click. Let's see if I can do all of them. I don't want it. Okay, there's Arunachala. It is the home of this place, the Sri Ramana Ashram. And so Ramana Maharshi was one of the first gurus uh, in the early, late 19th, early 20th century um, in what was a movement, I'm going to slow this down, what was a movement um, that became known as the Hindu Renaissance, probably the most important Uh, Hinduism, the religion of the people, revives partly in response to the British Raj. And Mahatma Gandhi is the most famous example of that because Gandhi leads this revolution that is at least part a spiritual revolution that turns the governments of India back over to the Indian people. (coughs) Ramana Maharshi, uh, this is Maharshi's tomb, Uh, Ramana Maharshi... Uh, along with uh, another leader, Sri Ramakrishna, they did. They participated in something that was decidedly less about revolution and more intensely about spirituality. Ramana founded an ashram on the side of arunachala uh, in Tiruvannamalai. Uh, Maharshi was considered. Uh, A meditation on his own death, and he reached enlightenment. And as a response to that, he moved from his home city a few miles away to Tiruvannamalai, which, in addition to being the site of Arunachala, the holy mountain, there's one of the largest temples in India there. And Ramana became one of the boy saints who climbed down into an old. He then climbed up Let's see if there's a picture of his Yeah, he then climbed up This is about halfway up the side of Arunachala And they built a little house for him And this is where the ashram started Uh, And he became such a charismatic figure That a whole movement of people gathered around Ramana Uh, And Ramana Maharshi still has followers today There's a whole publishing house that's dedicated to his work Uh, There were hundreds and hundreds of people at this ashram Uh, I particularly like, so this is eating on the floor. This is one of three large dining rooms. Uh, Meals at the ashram would have as many as 300 people sitting on the floor, eating dinner off of a banana leaf. Uh, They had to have several banana orchards just to produce enough leaves to feed people on. Um, Our our friend Donna, who was on the trip, described a meal at the ashram as basically grain and uh, that every meal involved some kind of rice or millet and then some kind of vegetable that had been heavily pureed. Sometimes it was, you know, like a little bit waterier, sometimes it was a little bit slimier. Uh, it was all really delicious. Um, but it was not a lot of bread. Um, that's just a lotus flower in the ashram. This, in particular, like it gives you a sense of how Ramana was a little bit different. So, Ramana. Um, had a cow named Lakshmi and Ramana claimed that Lakshmi had reached enlightenment uh, by looking upon Ramana and Lakshmi would famously follow Ramana And then there was a crow and two dogs that also joined Lakshmi as enlightened animals. Classical Hinduism would hold that uh, animals are lesser incarnations, that you can't reach enlightenment in animal form. You have to be reincarnated as a human being and reach enlightenment then. But Ramana said, no, no, they reached enlightenment. And so um, Lakshmi, the cow, and the other animal companions are there. Ramana also So Ramana pushed against the grain a little bit uh, in his own time. But we spent some time here, and, we, and this is Ramana's tomb, and people circumambulate the tomb all the time as well. Um, this is looking down on the temple complex from Ramana's ashram up on the side. These are pictures in the temple complex. Um, these towers, uh, sometimes are painted white. In terms of they're painted white um, in a Um, those towers, they're called Gopal, they're these um, huge towers uh, that are sort of the markers of southern Indian temples and they have thousands and thousands of characters put on them, these are all images from inside the temple, this is the water bath you can see some more of the towers this is some of our group on the inner sanctum of the temple that's brother Aidan, me and a rickshaw there, there's a picture of one of the towers, some of them are painted super brightly Uh, And they're painted super, super brightly. And seeing all of the gods and the the story characters painted like that, it's like looking at a medieval cathedral in Europe because the fronts and the insides of those cathedrals would have been painted as well. Uh, But there's been a movement in India lately to paint it all white. And so you'll also see them white. So our group would gather uh, every day for Eucharist. Uh, We would gather every day for a lecture. Field trip to a temple or something sometimes but otherwise it was just a really slow, quiet, and very vegetarian trip uh, this is talking about the Gospel of Thomas with Matthew and Aidan. In Tiruvannamalai there's a Lutheran center uh, where we were, we were staying in the ashram but it was very near the ashram and we were doing our lectures in the Lutheran center which was nice because it was more outdoors than anything we could get at the ashram uh, and there were big fans which is why we chose it Uh, But it's interesting, Ramana was such a charismatic figure and was so sort of open and egalitarian that that ashram in particular became a place where other religious traditions came to dialogue with Hinduism. Uh, Just as Hinduism was having this renaissance, um, Christianity started asking questions about whether the approach that they had taken in India over the past 300, 400 years had been the right approach which was basically to damn everything that wasn't Christian, to say that Hindus were a bunch of idol worshippers, and to say that if you didn't convert to Christianity, you were going straight to hell. Christianity started wondering about that about the same time that this Hindu Renaissance came about. Uh, And Tiruvannamalai was one of the places where Christianity, the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church, several roots started coming to Tiruvannamalai, several Catholic leaders um, started coming to pray and to stay at Ramana's Ashram, And there started to be this question about what would it look like to see God through the eyes of another faith? To say that God is not limited to our religious tradition. Uh, Some of the early monks that asked these questions, uh, a monk called Henry Lusso, who was French, and famously a monk named E. Griffiths, uh, that came and stayed with Ramana really laid the groundwork for a declaration that happens at Vatican II in the 1960s. Now there's a very famous Vatican II declaration about the world religions that essentially reverses the course of the Catholic Church. Uh, it, It changes the theological position. And the Catholic Church teaching goes from basically that you have to be a Catholic to go to heaven. And it says, it quotes scripture, and it says, the spirit blows where it chooses, and God can work in other religious traditions. And a lot of the groundwork for that declaration was being laid in India. And a lot of it happened here at Ramana's Ashram. Mike? Yep. In Hinduism, in does ashram function as both the center of education and an asking point? It weren't Tricky. Uh, It's the custom to uh, create chalk drawings in entryways And this was one we saw on the first day And I just thought it was really pretty But there were chalk drawings everywhere And you may see some more of them as we go The other thing that's um, big for Pongal, And Pongol's big in Tamil Nadu Is to bathe your cow And then decorate your cow Because cows are sacred animals And the, the milk and the cheese of cows is used a lot My father who grew up a rancher was... Totally stressed out when I told him that in India most cows die of old age. Uh, well yeah, that, that's a waste. But um, but the milk and the cheese are are well loved. And for Pungle, they bathed the cow. So on um, we were there for the big day of Pungle when they were getting the cows ready, and we got to watch these people dragging cows into the ocean, which was just about as delightful as you can imagine that image was. What were you gonna ask, Tom? Huh? So cows were treated as Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. C- cows have been sacred in Hinduism. For, I mean, sacred cows. Uh, cows have been sacred for a very, very long time. Um, other animals as well. We, we got to climb a temple outside um, of one of the options. We were saying, Well, the temple of a thousand steps that has a special dedication to Hanuman. And so there are just monkeys everywhere. And like in all temples um, in, in India, you have to take your shoes off uh, right at the temple gates. And so climbing the 1,000 steps, the 1,000 stone steps, you have to do with your shoes off. Um, and socks are considered uh, like not OK as well, you bare feet on bare ground. But in a temple dedicated to Hanuman, it's a little bit precarious because there's a lot of monkey crap uh, that you're trying not to step in. But the monkeys are really cute. And for those who don't know, who is Hanuman. Hanuman is the monkey god. There's a, there's a statue of him. But these are just some of the 1,000 steps. One of the things that's kind of amazing about Hinduism is very different um, being in India. And and this is is one of those where I want to be careful about running into that east and west dynamic, right? But in much of India, um, the world is still seen as sacred. And it's a normal thing on your way to work or on your way home from school to stop by the temple for a little while and to make an offering to your particular God uh, that you are most, um, you know, like the, the devotee for. It's a very normal thing to pause there in the midst of life. And there are temples just sort of everywhere. Every little town there are multiple temples in. And, and it's, they're just a constant, consistent part of everyday life. It, it's a very normal thing for a child to decide that they're going to renounce the world and become a sadhu, a renunciate, and join an ashram. And most families have one or two that have done that. If the world is still it, there's not a lot of life. There's more now in some of the major cities, but still the majority of India it kind of functions on a sacred time with a sacred geography. The number of people that take the full moon off and make their way to Tiruvannamalai is still stunning. So it's sort of something. I mean, all of these temples on a random Tuesday afternoon are just packed. Uh, there's people in them. And, and temples are also sort of a gathering place. They're in the middle of the town, the town square. There are people hanging out in the shade, talking to their neighbors and relaxing. Uh, just inside the temple, there are people selling all sorts of things. But what's really interesting is the temples, archaeologically to me, there's another word, archaeology, right? But they, they look like the temples in Central America that I've spent a lot of time in, except they're not empty, they're not ruins, they're alive and living and moving and, and centers still. No. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about, in India, like there's a big difference between the Indian subcontinent and, um, and all of Mesoamerica, Central America, Latin America, and one of the big differences is because of the constant connection and trade between India and Northern Europe, when colonization happened, the people did not die off in near the numbers they did here in the Americas. They, they had immunities to the diseases. And in some ways, that meant that there were a lot more people to keep the culture alive. Oh, these are kids with their cow dressed for pungle. So the next ashram we went to, or the first ashram we went to, I'm sort of going backwards, um, is a rather fascinating place. I mentioned Pete Griffiths, who had gone to Urbana, he on his ashram. Well, he came and he took over this project that Henry Lusso and a couple of other um, European monks had started. It's called Satchitananda, uh, the Monastery of the Holy Trinity and they were all Benedictines at the time Roman Catholic Benedictine monks and they started in a, a Catholic ashram uh, these are more temple pictures This is we, we the, the temple near Satchidananda was preparing for this huge Vishnu festival and so there were thousands of people waiting in line to go make their offering before Vishnu and the lines like wrapped around the whole temple complex uh, the elephants were getting ready as well because they were going to, with the Brahmins, pull this cart that cart is about four stories tall. And the statue of the god was going into the middle of it, and elephants and a hundred brahmin were going to pull these ropes that were about this big around and pull the cart all the way around the town several times um, for the big festival. It, it like The whole village participated in this thing. Um, this is just some of the art inside the temple. It's just sort of a random door, too. It's just not... Oh, this is Hanuman. That's a three-story tall Hanuman, the monkey god. Uh, this is back at the um, Satyadananda Ashram. So the Monastery of the Holy Trinity is an active Kamaldolese Benedictine monastery. Uh, these are several of the monks with our group. That's our whole group. Uh, <laughs> that's one of the original monks that helped found the monastery with one of our Canadian participants on his motor scooter. That's eating in the dining hall at Satchadananda, decidedly a much smaller place than Ramana's ashram. That's Michael. Michael's been coming to this ashram for over 60 years. That's Brother Dorotik. So, Dorotik right now is the superior, um, and he is describing uh, this is the cross as you make your way into the chapel uh, at Satchadananda. Do you know what that symbol is in the middle? Maybe yogis? Yeah, it's an om. Uh, so om. The various home is a, the most common chant uh, and this gives So they chose to put om at the center of the cross. What is the cross growing up out of? Yeah, it's a lotus flower. It's a, it's a symbol of holiness in Hinduism. So the Sachidananda ashram uh, attempts to bring Christianity in through the symbol systems, through the language, through the understanding of uh, the people in Tamil Nadu. So this is their gate. It's a gopuram, just like those towers. Uh, it's ashram of the Holy Trinity. Uh, you'll notice the angels don't look quite like the angels at Holy Communion's windows. Um, but that figure in the middle, I do you know what that is. It's a trinity. It's what's called a trimurti, which is a very common image. Trimurti became a way to talk about the trinity in Hinduism for Bede Griffiths. This was Bede Griffiths' typewriter uh, in his hut. Uh, Bede was a prolific writer, and a lot of his writings are what lays the foundation for um, the Second Vatican Council's doctrine on the world religions. Here's Jesus decorated. There's another trinity, Trimurti. This is the new, t- um, the new church built in the style of a southern Indian temple. Uh, you can see the tower up on the left um, that has several images uh, uh, sort of relating Christianity through the symbol system of uh, Hinduism. This is the inside of the monastic church, where we went to four to five services a day. Um, the altar is that platform. Uh, you'll get a closer picture of it in a moment. The monks sat facing each other in rows in the middle. Uh, If you think Mike getting rid of pews is something um, contestable, this is the seating inside uh, the Monastery Church of the Satchitananda Ashram. Everybody sat on the floor. There were chairs around the edges for North Americans and Europeans whose knees didn't do too well. Um, This is Dorotek showing us the altar. So the altar is a lotus blossom. And Eucharist is celebrated on a brass platter. Uh, And before Eucharist is celebrated, the priest gets eight flowers. So Bede incorporating this into uh, the worship of the monastery in India was a way of embracing a symbol system and translating it into Christianity. You can see um, where Brother Christotasa is there, that dark space. And you get a sort of feel for the whole inside of the church there. Um, as a distinction, this is in Pondicherry. This is a church of southern India, uh, which is actually in full communion with the Episcopal Church. There are two churches in India in full communion with the Episcopal Church. The Church of Southern India and a church called the Thoma. We're going to talk more about the Thoma in a moment. Um, but Christianity in India dates at least to the fourth century, if not earlier. Uh, and when the British Raj happened, and, and you know, there were Portuguese and French, all these colonies, uh, the, when the British took over all of India, began administering all of it, uh, they combined a bunch of the churches in the north and a bunch of the churches in the south, and they created one big ecumenical church, which because it was the British, became in full communion with um, the Church of England and thus the Episcopal Church. There were some components of places the Martoma, the earliest Christians in India, did not choose to join uh, the Church of Southern India or the Church of Northern India. Uh, and also the Catholics in the Portuguese and French colonies kept to themselves. But the Martoma chose not to join the Catholics either. And then later the Martoma came into full communion with the Episcopal Church. But some of the older architecture is more traditionally Christian. That brings us to Thomas. So the story goes that Thomas the Apostle and remind me, what's the big story about Thomas? What happens in the Gospels around Thomas? What? Downing Thomas. Right? That's the name we give him. So Thomas, after the resurrection, not there with the disciples when Jesus first appears to them. He, he missed dinner. Uh, and so then he, when they come and tell him Jesus is risen, he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see the womb. That same Thomas was sent on what was called the apostolate. So what does the word apostle mean? Anybody know? To be sent. Apostello in Greek means to send. So Thomas was sent to the east and traditionally ended up in India and traditionally died in what is now Chennai, what the British called Uh And so this is the tomb of St. Thomas, and there he is, touching Jesus' side, which is administered by the Roman Catholics, so it's very Roman Catholic-looking. Um, though they do have lotus flowers, so there's sort of a blend going on even there. Um, this is the cathedral that the Portuguese built over the tomb of St. Thomas. Uh, and Chennai is very proud of this you know, they, they, they proclaim in many places in this complex uh, that there are only three places in the world where you can go to the tomb of an apostle St. Peter's in Rome Santiago de Compostelo in Spain and St. Thomas in Chennai in India they're very proud of this this gives you a, a sense of the architecture that the Portuguese brought with them for this site But there's another site associated with Thomas. Uh, This is the church, which looks decidedly more Indian on the inside and on the outside. So this is the site of Thomas's martyrdom. That's where they remember Thomas' martyrdom in Chennai. Uh, And I leave it here partly because this site, they're pretty sure, has been a holy site in Christianity for at least 12, 1500 years. This is where they say Thomas the Apostle was martyred. And it gets me wondering. We spent a lot of time on this trip talking about the Gospel of Thomas and encounters with Hinduism and Buddhism and what happens when Christianity encounters other faiths. But this also serves as a reminder that what we think of as Christianity is shaped to a great deal, by the culture that it grew up in. Uh, I had to talk to Mary Henry quite a bit when she was getting ready for seminary uh, to, to reinforce for her. The Episcopal Church is a very Protestant church. And it really is. Episcopalianism is shaped by Western Protestantism. Yes, we've, we've got elements of Catholicism alive within us. But we are a very Protestant church. And, and, and in a lot of ways, the Episcopal Church has been a white Protestant church. Though that's not entirely true because we've also had a black Protestant church built into us, and it's, it's a very complex reality. But nevertheless, we've been shaped by white Northern European understandings of Jesus, and the Protestant work ethic, and austerity, and all sorts of, you know, all, all of those jokes you can tell about things like, you know, um, what, uh, how how, did, how many Episcopalians does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many else? Three. Two to make martinis and one to call the electrician. Yeah, two to make martinis one to call the electrician. I've also heard it three. One to make the martinis, uh, one to call the electrician, and the third to talk about how much better the old light bulb was. But, but there's there's a certain cultural background to our perception of Christianity. Uh, Dr. Ben Sanders, who was here just a couple weeks ago, talked about that really specifically when he talked about the way in which racism has been sort of baked in. Um, and one could also say colonialism has been baked in to our understanding of what Christianity is, what Christianity looks like. This sense that um, there's a superiority complex to Christianity. Uh, what some theologians call triumphalism is built in there. and And the existence in India of a church that is at least a thousand plus years old that has been a minority religion within the country and has been proclaiming the same gospel and has been celebrating the same Eucharist causes us to question our whole narrative. Is Christianity a Western religion at its heart? When Henry Lusso and when Dean Griffiths um, came from Northern Europe to India and spent this time encountering Buddhism and encountering Hinduism, they really started reading their own tradition a lot differently. One of the beauties about encountering another faith is that it makes you go back and reflect on the assumptions, the, the sort of sense of what it means to be your own faith. An evangelical leader that I know, a guy named Brian McLaren, was once invited to talk in front of a whole group of uh, of folks, and and it was meant to be an interview with this famous um, psychologist, and they were having all sorts of problems with the feed, so Brian is sort of vamping in front of a crowd of a lot bigger than what we have on this snow day here at Old Dominion, uh, a couple hundred people, and they're all really bright minds, like a Ted type thing. And Brian said, while they were trying to get this whole thing flowing, they just started bantering back and forth. And so he asked randomly the guy, well, what do you think is Christianity's biggest problem? And the guy said, oh, well, that's easy. Whereas in the West, Hinduism and Buddhism have been presented as ways of life, Christianity has been pres- pre- um, presented as a system of belief. Christianity's job is to find itself again as a way of life. That's a really succinct way of saying what Bede Griffiths and what Henry so and what these early 20th century um, monks came to encounter in India. By reinterpreting their symbol systems, by opening up the Gospels in new ways, they encountered that within their own faith tradition, there were these resources that they didn't know existed until they saw something like them in another faith and went back and mined in their own tradition. Uh, Brother Thomas Keating, who was a uh, also a Roman Catholic Benedictine but invents this methodology called centering prayer that he said, As we sort of invented it and mostly we recovered the way of praying that it existed in the early church and that has stayed in the orthodox world for the past 2,000 years. We help people to get quieter, which western Christians aren't very good at doing. So it brings me back to that whole idea of the encounter between East and West. Is that really a fair thing to do? One of the ways that question has been asked is um, around the same time that these guys were going to India, in Egypt, there was a discovery, uh, and it came near about the time. Decided to take the non-biblical texts and bury them, so that they wouldn't get in trouble for having non-biblical texts in their library. And they were unburied in 1945. It's a cache called the Non. partly because of the other uh, stuff that it was discovered with. Uh, Gospel of Thomas was thought of as a Gnostic text. Anybody know what Gnosticism is? Anybody Gnosticism? I'm just being quiet this morning. What's Gnosticism? So Gnosticism is something that's counted as a heresy in the early church. It's this idea that there's a secret knowledge that Jesus passed down. And it came up with all sorts of problematic theologies around Jesus. But but there was this idea that there was this secret knowledge, this gnosis, that was passed down. And the early church said, no, that's not the case. There's no secret knowledge. It's all there in Scripture. So Thomas was counted as one of these Gnostic texts. But the scholars, even the earlier scholars that were saying it's a Gnostic text, now are saying, nah, it's not really like the other stuff. There might be a little bit of a tinge of that to it, but it's, it's definitely not like a Gnostic gospel. Thomas is what's known as a saying's gospel. Uh, Has anybody ever heard of a Q source? The four-source hypothesis? There's this idea that the Gospels as we have them, um, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke. the Gospels as we know that were written down there were collections of just sayings of Jesus. And the Gospel of Thomas is one of those. Um, so let's read a few of these. Uh, if you want to read verse 7, just right there. This one, the answer on the page. So, so let me read step. Go ahead, Mark. Yeshua said, Fortune is the lion eaten by a human. a lion becomes human. Unfortunate is the human eaten by a lion for a human becomes a lion. So some of it's a little snarky. Um, some of it's a little fun. Yeshua sure. is, so this is a translation. questions for discussion, I'll leave you to do that um, for 15 minutes. Before I get that, You talk amongst yourselves at the end.